Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Holding these children uh, as I baptize them reminds me of when I was a new dad. Back in March of 2006, uh, Trisha gave birth to our oldest child, Corbin. And I still remember bringing him home and not really knowing how to carry him. Uh, I, evidently, I still don't. Um, <laughs> but I just remember kind of wrapping my arm underneath his arms and just carrying him around like a sack of potatoes. And I look back at pictures, and I'm like, I can't believe this kid is still alive. But I learned how to be a dad, how to handle a child. Uh, when Trish had our oldest child, Corbin, she was actually teaching at the time. Um, and so she took maternity leave and was off the rest of the school year and was home throughout the summer. But when the fall came, uh, which was my last year of seminary, she went back to school to continue to teach to provide for our family as I finished up my final year of seminary. And so when she went back to teach, I became Mr. Mom. And I was in charge of our oldest child, uh, who, of course, was a baby at the time. And so it was a, a pleasure to, to read Bible stories with him, to, you know, play with him on the ground, to teach him how to crawl, to feed him, to, to pray with him, to put him to bed, to cuddle with him. I loved all of those things of being this stay-at-home Mr. Mom dad. Uh, during that last year, as I mentioned, it was my last year of seminary, and so I was attending night classes for the most part. But there were two classes, uh, two days a week, where I had to go and attend classes on campus. So my mom uh, graciously agreed to come over and to watch Corbin while uh, both of us were gone. And I remember when my mom would come over, I would give her all of these detailed instructions of how to care for Corbin. Uh, I would say, you know, this is how you change a cloth diaper. This is what a, a T-strap looks like. That's what they use now, or at least they did then. I would say, you know, when you heat up the bottle for Corbin, make sure that you put it in the bottle warmer. Don't put it in the microwave because then it will unevenly heat and it will kill the nutrients. And I would say, you know, if he gets crabby, put him in his high chair and set him up by the window and, and open the, the shutters because he loves the fresh air. And so I would, I would be telling her how to take care of my son because I love my son and I care for my son. But at some point she would say, Daniel, I've raised five children and you all turned out okay. Get on with it. I know what I'm doing. I'll take good care of him. And then I would go off to class. If you've ever been a part of a conversation like that, then you can kind of understand what Jesus is doing in this prayer today. Uh, Jesus is leaving his apostles. Jesus is leaving his disciples, not just for a day, but he's leaving for a very long time. And so he prays to the Father and asks the Father to come and to care for his disciples, to care for those that he so much loves. 
And it's not that the father doesn't know how to do it or that the father doesn't want to do it, just like my mom. He knows how to do it. He is capable, but this is the cry of our Savior's heart. Last week, we started this passage in John chapter 17 of Jesus' prayer to the Father called the High Priestly Prayer. And we said that prayer often reflects the deepest affections of our heart. And last week we saw in the first half of Jesus' prayer from from verses 1 to 10 that his, his affection, his desire was that the triune God would be glorified through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Today we see that his next affection, his other great affection is for his church. That the Father would mature his church. That the Father would protect his church. That the Father would unify his church. And so as we look at this passage today, what we are looking at is Jesus' prayer for you. Jesus' prayer for me. Jesus' prayer for the church eternal. And so if you want to know what Christ wants most for you, this passage tells us the heart of your Savior for you. If you would please open up to John chapter 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you or around you, and it is page 903 in that red Bible. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Again, this is what is called uh, the high priestly prayer, because in the Old Testament, the priests were, would come to God, uh, the Father, to intercede for God's people. And this is exactly what Jesus does here. Christ comes to the Father to pray, to mediate, to intercede for his church, for you and for me. And so this is Christ's prayer for us, his beloved bride. So let's look today, John chapter 17, verse 11 through 26. John 17, verse 11. This is the prayer of Jesus for you. Jesus says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, and this is where you come in, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, there is so much in this prayer. There are so many riches for us to glean. But more than anything, I pray that we would see the heart of our Savior for us. Your desire for us, your love for us, your care for us, your compassion to us. Lord God, by your spirit, through your word, help our passions to be more aligned with your passions. That we would seek the things that you pray for us. That we would pray for the things that you pray for us. That we would love the things that you love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month, uh, three-year-old Casey Hathaway of North Carolina went missing. He was playing at a relative's house and he wandered off into the woods and he didn't come back. A huge search party gathered and they went to look for Casey, but they couldn't find him. Finally, after three days, a woman that was walking down the road heard cries coming from the woods. She reported it to the rescuers who went and found Casey tangled up in thorn bushes. He was cold and he was pleading for his mama, as many of us would. The reason why this story got so much publicity is because the boy claimed that he survived in the woods despite the cold temperature, despite the rain, that he survived because there was a bear that took care of him. Did anybody hear about this? You know, when a child gets lost, it is a scary situation for two major reasons. First, because the world is much more dangerous than they understand. And secondly, because a child is much more helpless than they're willing to admit. Jesus prays for us, honestly, for the exact same reasons. Because this world is much more dangerous than we can comprehend, and yet we are much weaker than we care to admit. And so Jesus, who loves his church with an unending love, pleads with the Father to protect us, to mature us, to unify us as he departs and goes to heaven. And so as we study Jesus' prayer to the Father for us, may, may the things that he prays for be our endeavor be our prayer for one another as we seek to live according to the heart of our Savior. 
And so here's, here's what we see. There's actually, I have four things. The bulletin is off. It, it changed since Friday. There are four things Christ prays for. He actually prays for a lot more, but I tried to include them underneath four main points. The first is this. Jesus asked the Father to fortify us. That is, Jesus, the Father, asked that, 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 that the Father would defend us, that the Father would protect us. Jesus says, Father, will you keep them? Keep them, Father. Guard them. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, right? Jesus is leaving. He knows that's coming. They will remain in the world. He says, and I am coming to you. And then he addresses the God, he addresses God as Holy Father. Now, this is a term that we shouldn't pass over too quickly. I mean, this may be a term that seems fairly common to us, that we would cry out to God, maybe Holy Father. But this is actually the only place in all of Scripture this title is used for God. Holy Father is kind of a paradoxical statement in some ways because holy means the set-apart one, the almighty, the infinite, the majestic God, creator of the universe. It is the, the otherness of God. And yet Father is a term of intimacy, tenderness in relationship. And so Jesus prays to the Holy Father because the Father is both powerful and all-loving. He is majestic and intimate. He is capable and he is wanting. If he was only powerful but did not care, his prayer would mean nothing. If he only cared but had no power, Jesus' prayer would mean nothing. But the Father is powerful and he is caring, and he is capable. And so he says, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of the script, destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When Jesus is praying for the Father to keep them, he is praying for our safekeeping, that his disciples then and now might be protected by the Father, just as Jesus protected the apostles while Christ ministered on earth. The exception to this, of course, that Jesus points out is Judas, who was given over to Satan for the purposes of God and the purposes of the gospel. But Jesus uses this word keep several times in this passage. Jesus says, Father, keep them. I have kept them. Now you keep them, Father. And what we see here is what Jesus wants the Father to keep us to and what he wants to keep us from. First, we see what Jesus wants the Father to keep us to. Verse 13, he says, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that is the gospel of Christ, the, 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 the teachings of the kingdom of God. I speak these things in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Throughout the farewell discourse on many different occasions, which come right before this prayer, Jesus is constantly concerned about our joy. Back in John 15, and you also see in John 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, talking to the apostles, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
John 16, he says, and you will receive when you pray that your joy may be full. And so why is Jesus so concerned about our joy? Why is he concerned about your joy and my joy? Why does he pray for the Father to keep them in this joy, to protect the joy? Jesus prays for this because Jesus knows that we were created joy-hungry people. We were created with hearts that, that long for joy, that thirst for joy, that pursue joy at all costs. And if we do not find our joy in God, then we will look for our joy in other places that will not satisfy us. Jesus prays to the Father to keep us in the joy of the Lord so that we will not grasp for joy in other places. This is for our good, for our protection, and for God's glory. And so Jesus prays the Father would fortify us, to guard us, to keep us in his joy. But also Jesus prays that the Father would protect us against something, keep us from someone. Look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them. There's the word again. Keep them from the evil one. Do you see who Jesus is asking the Father to provide us protection from? From the evil one, from Satan who seeks to spoil our joy in God. Jesus knows the joy of our heart is grasping. And if, if we do not find our joy in God, Satan provides plenty of other places to find an artificial, superficial jo joy. Satan is very clever. That's why he's called the great deceiver. The evil one has convinced the world that God and godliness is oppressive, that it is boring, that it is miserable, and if, that if you want true happiness and true joy, it is found in a life of self-indulgence, of unrestraint, of religious immorality. Satan's schemes are so deceiving, so captivating, so powerful that, that Jesus says, Father, protect them against these schemes. I know for me personally, the schemes of Satan all around invade me. And I pray, Father, protect me from these schemes. Let me give you an example. Just Friday night, uh, we were watching, Trish and I, with, our, with two of our kids, we were watching HGTV, uh, which, is, is, is a, which is a great network and really displays, I think, the handiwork of God and the creativity of God that he has sown into uh, people into his creation. But we had a discussion during this about the dangers of watching HDTV. I know what you're thinking. Dangers in HDTV. It's like the cleanest network out there. And it is. It's, it's a great network. But there are dangers in even watching HGTV because HGTV can have this temptation to really breed a spirit of discontentment within us, can it? There is a temptation to say, oh man, I need a house like that. I have to move. I have to renovate. I have to do this. I have to do that. And what happens through this, and HGTV is a great network, but what it does is it focuses us on earthly things that burn instead of eternal things that matter forever. And so you see, Satan is so subtle, so crafty that he can use something so good like HGTV or like a lake house or like sports. He can take those things 
to subtly distract us from our joy in God and place our joy in other places that will never satisfy our souls. Jesus prays for you and for me because like newborn babies, all of us are so vulnerable to the schemes of Satan. Let me ask, where are you tempted to pursue imitation joy? Where are you the most vulnerable? Is it the deception of materialism and comfort? That if you have this, then you will be happy? Is it the deception of a romantic relationship? That if you have this person, then you'll be happy? Is it the imitation joy of power and control? That if you can have things your way, then you will be happy? We must pray along with our Savior for ourselves and for those that we love and for his church that the Father would protect our hearts, that he would keep us from the schemes of Satan and that we would rest in God alone as our source of ultimate satisfying joy. And so the first thing Christ prays for is that the Father would fortify us, protect us from Satan, and keep us in the joy of the Lord. Second petition is similar, but instead of negative and defensive, it is more proactive. Instead of protecting us, Jesus asked the Father to sanctify us. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is a statement of ownership of citizenship, of identity. Christ did not belong to the world. He was of heaven. And he came and he took you out of the world and brought you into the kingdom of God. So you no longer belong to this world if you're in Christ. You belong to the Father. Verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This word sanctify uh, in the original language, which is Greek, is pronounced agiazo. And this Greek word actually occurs three times in verses 17 through 19 that we'll look at here. One of them is disguised, if you're in the ESV, with a different English word, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But in this context of verse 17, sanctify means to purify. And so Jesus is praying that our hearts and our souls and our actions and our passions would be purified, that they would become like Jesus. And the way that this happens is through God's truth. And Jesus tells us very clearly here that the place that we can find God's truth is in God's word. He says, your word is truth. That is why we must be people of the book, people of the Bible. That's why we study the Bible in small groups. That's why we preach the Bible on Sunday mornings because the Bible is the source of God's truth and everything else has the temptation to deceive us because Satan is so crafty into alternative truths which are no truths at all. And so Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Purify them through your word. He continues in verse 18 and says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In other words, your sanctification, your growth in godliness, in purity, your growth into the image of Christ does not happen in a monastery. It does not happen in a vacuum. It does not happen out of this world. It happens in everyday life, in your home, in your workplace, in your recreation. Verse 19, he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself 
that they also may be sanctified in the truth. In this verse, that Greek word agiazo appears twice. Once, obviously, is that term sanctified, referring to us, to the church. But that word consecrated is also agiazo, referring to Jesus. In fact, the New International Version translates verse 19 very literally, and it says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And so the question is, why, why does the one Bible translate this, this word sanctify differently when it's referring to Jesus? Well, I think what the translators are helping us understand is that this word is used in a different way in referring to Jesus than it does in referring to his disciples. See, Jesus saying that he will sanctify himself, that he will consecrate himself, is not saying that he's going to become purer or more sinless because he's already sinless. Rather, Jesus is saying that he's going to commit himself, set himself apart for the purposes of God. Richard Pratt puts it this way. In talking about this term, sanctify myself, he says, Jesus being, being supremely holy did not need to be sanctified in the sense of being made purer, like you and I. His sanctification consists of his being set apart for holy use. As the high priest, he consecrated himself to his sacred task, which involved his supreme sacrifice. And it follows from this supreme sacrifice that those who are his should be holy and dedicated to his service. This can be a bit confusing. Jesus' prayer can be a bit confusing at times. So let me try to clarify it, hopefully. In the Old Testament, there were priests that were consecrated, set apart, in order to make consecrated sacrifices, set apart sacrifices for the sins of the people. The priests were set apart through ordination and through wearing different clothing. The animals were set apart because they were physically without blemish and without defect. They were flawless. And so in the Old Testament, these set-apart priests would make these set-apart sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people to make atonement for their sins. But what is utterly unique about Jesus, our great high priest, is that Jesus was not only the set-apart priest, Jesus was also the set-apart sacrifice without blemish, without flaw, without sin. He was the sacrifice for our sin to make us right with God again so that we could now stand pure and blameless before a holy God, washed in the blood of Christ, clothed in his righteousness. And so, before God in Christ, we, his church, are fully sanctified. We are pure. We are blameless. We are without sin before God, forensically. That is our status. But we know that is not our practice. We know that that, that what we do does not match who we are in Christ. We are pure in Christ, but our actions and our desires often are not pure. They often do not match our identity in Christ. And so this is what Jesus is praying for. He will purify us. Lord, may they live pure because I have made them pure. He's asking that our actions would match our identity. I'll give you an illustration. You know, when Trish and I got married back in 2001... 
uh, just a little over 18 years ago. Um, on that date, I became her husband. My identity changed. I was married, um, 100% her husband that day. But I did not always act like her husband. Uh, I have grown in learning how to be a husband. Like, I did not realize as a husband, I should probably let my wife know if I'm not coming home for dinner, right? That's probably a husband, something a husband should do, right? That, that, that if I'm going to sign up for a huge commitment, I should probably let my wife know before I sign up for that huge commitment. Just this past week, I learned again that, that, that your wife does not like it when you cut her off in mid-sentence, right? I, I am a husband, 100% a husband, but I am growing in my husbandship. Does that make sense? And so I'm trying to become what I already am. And I got a long way to go. You may come here today and just feel overwhelmed by your sin. You may be you may feel dirty, contaminated, unholy, and unpure. But if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, all of your sin has been washed away. You have made, been made pure and holy before a righteous God. And what Jesus' prayer for us here is that we would live holy because we are holy. That we would live pure because we are pure. That we would live sanctified lives because we are sanctified. And so as you put sin to death and live onto righteousness, you are now living according to your identity in Christ. And this is what Jesus is praying for, both in this petition and in the petition to come. And so Christ prays that the Father would fortify us, protect us from the evil one, keep us in the joy of Christ. He prays that the Father would sanctify us, through his word to grow us in purity because we are pure in Christ before God. Third, Jesus asked the Father to unify us. Second half of verse 11, we kind of went over this earlier, but you see Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That they may be one, Jesus says to the Father, even as we are one. How are the Father and Son one? Well, again, in his farewell discourse, which comes right before this prayer, Jesus says on multiple occasions, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There is this reciprocal indwelling between the Father and the Son. This is the mystery of the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons, but one God united together. This is, this is a great mystery, but also a great wonder. And Jesus is praying this for his church, that, that we would have Trinitarian oneness amongst us. Jesus continues this petition in verse 20, if you look there. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, talking about the church today and the church forevermore. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Not, not in each other, but in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, not only has Christ made you pure, but Christ has united you to himself. It's called union with Christ, that you have become in Christ. And if you are in Christ and every other Christian is in Christ, then, then by affiliation, you are united to one another. Forensically, actually, you are united to one another whether you like it or not. And what, what, what Christ is praying for here is that they would act as one, that they would operate as one because they are one in Christ. We actually see the Apostle Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians 12, and he gives a great illustration. He's writing to the church in Corinth because there's great division. There's quarreling among the church. Uh, some of them are following one guy. Some of them are following another guy. There is jealousy and strife. There is sexual immorality, which is breaking the church apart. They are suing one another in courts. It is a horrible situation. And so Paul is writing to encourage them to be one in Christ because they are one in Christ. And he used the illustration of a human body. This is what he says. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He continues further down and says, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. God has so, compo so composed his body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then he says this, now you are even with all of your schisms, even with all of your quarreling, even with all of your sin, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so Paul is saying, listen, you have been united to Christ as the head. You are a part of this body, the church. You are united to one another. Live united because you are united. Just last night, um, Trish and I went to a show, a comedy show, Christian comedy show, and it was opened up by two DJs by two competing Christian radio stations. And if you don't think they compete, I mean, just listen to their pledge drives, right? They're, they're trying to get resources from the community so that they can sustain their ministry. And so they're competing in many ways. But the DJs were up there uh, from Q90 and from the family. And one DJ just talked about how much, he said, we love each other. Even though we are from different stations, because we have the same boss. Now, I know that may be cheesy, but there's a lot of truth to that. That even though they are at, quote, competing stations, they're united in their purpose. They're united in their love. They're united in their mission. If you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, whether you are single, married, widowed, or divorced, we are one in Christ. Whether you are homeschool, public school, or private school, we are one in Christ. Whether you are black, white, or Hispanic, we are one in Christ. Whether you are rich, poor, or middle class, we are one in Christ. Whether you are a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, we are one in Christ. Whether you are a Baptist, or a Presbyterian, or a Pentecostal, we are one in Christ. 
Christ prays for unity. He prays for oneness because he has made us one in him. Let us, by the power of the Heavenly Father, live like we are united in Christ because we are. Jesus prays to the Father to fortify us, sanctify us, unify us. And finally, Jesus asks the Father to loveify us. If you're wondering if that is a real word, uh, the red squiggly lines underneath the word would indicate to me that it is not. But I think as we look at these last three verses of the Lord's Prayer, I, I don't know if there's a better way to describe what Jesus is praying for here, that we would be loveified. Verse 23, Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's pause there for a second. Let's soak that in. Do you see what Jesus says? You love them even as you love me. (laughs) God Almighty, Father of all, loves you to the same degree that he loves his one and only son. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus loves you? I'm sorry, that the, well, Jesus does love you, that's true. But did you know that the father loves you as much as he loves his only son? You know, I I love you, church, I, I do, I love you, but I do not love you as much as my own kids. I'm not thinking about how I can throw a great birthday party for you or take you on an amazing vacation or bring you treats home after work. I'm not doing that because I love you, but I do not love you like my own kids. Listen to this. Chew on this. The God of the universe loves you to the same degree that he loves his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus continues, he says, Father, I desire that they also, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, that is in heaven. We talked about this a little bit last week. He says, to see my glory that you have given me because, and then here's the because, the why. Why is he glorious? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God so loved his son that he glorified him from eternity past. And that same love that God has for his son, he has for you. God has loved you with an eternal love, not only eternity future, but eternity past. Before you were born, God loved you, church. God loves you with the same quality and quantity that he loves his one and only son. Now, verse 25 through 26, as Jesus ends this prayer, it's no longer petitions, requests made to the Father. Rather, it is a pledge and promise to to the Father and to us, his church. Verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, 
Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, talking about Christians, know that you have sent me. I made it known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Jesus is promising that we will grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the love for God, the love of God for us in Christ. And then he says that the love with which you have loved me, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus does not promise only to love you. Jesus promises to loveify you. To put the love of God inside of you for yourself, for others, for God himself. Jesus loveifies our hearts and souls as we receive the love of God in Christ and then overflow with it to the world around us. Let me end with, with this story. I'm not going to make it to my conclusion. That's okay. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher, probably one of the most brilliant men in Britain in the 20th century. Uh, he went to medical school there in Britain, and he was regarded as one of the most brilliant men who ever went through that medical school. Uh, he was so intelligent, in fact, that he was assigned to care for uh, the royal court there in England. Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones left all of the fame, all of the you know, all the pomp to go and to be a minister of the gospel. And he was called to go to a poor fishing village far away from London. And as he ministered there, he, he wondered to himself, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? And, and what gave him confidence that God had indeed saved him and rescued him was the way that he loved these fishermen, these fishermen families. Many of them uneducated, some of them could not read. In a, in a highly social class system, he loved these people. He learned from these people. He was unified to these people. And the reason was because he had been loveified by Jesus. He had received the love of Christ. He had received the love of the Father who loved him to the same degree that he loved his only son. And he was so overwhelmed with the love that it united him to love those around him. You know, just last week I met with a brand new Christian. And they said, when I became a Christian, the way I looked at everyone completely changed. It completely changed. He said, I now cared about people. I saw value in people because I now knew that they were made in the image of God and that God so loved the world. It changed everything about the way that I viewed other people. God had loveified him. Christians, we can only love one another to the degree that our hearts grasp the love of God for us in Christ. And as we grasp that love of God, for us in Christ. It allows us to really move forward in all these ways that Jesus has prayed for us in this prayer. If we grasp the love of God for us in Christ, it fortifies us and guards us against pursuing other joys that are cast out there by Satan that will never satisfy. The love of God in Christ sanctifies us as we seek to be like the one that we love. The love of God in Christ unifies us as we love one another, as Christ has loved us. And the love of God loveifies us as we receive and enjoy and then overflow with the greatest love of all. Final thought, John Knox, one of the, one of the great reformers of the 16th century, was laying on his deathbed for multiple days. And every day he asked that someone come open the Bible 
and read to him this chapter, John chapter 17. Because as he said, quote, this is where I first cast my spiritual anchor. Friends, may this prayer of Jesus encourage your heart with the love of God, the grace of God, and the plan of God for you and for his church for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much. If we could just grasp your love and the love of the Father, (laughs) we would live so radically different. Help us to be overwhelmed by your love this week for the rest of our lives, that we would grow in understanding your love for us and that we might live out that love to our family, to our friends, to the world around us. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know the joy of Christ, does not know the love of God, may they know it today, Lord. May you work in their hearts through your spirit to know this joy that will always satisfy the relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. Lord, as we turn to the table, we are reminded of how much you loved us, that you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son to die for our sins that we could be restored in relationship with you. Lord, as we take these elements, may we be reminded of your love. May we be overwhelmed with your love. And may we go forth living out your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.